0: At the age of 11, uh, my mother was injured while at work. And that just completely changed our trajectory personally and financially. And so at that point, it was very clearly we went from being comfortable to uncomfortable and poor. Yeah, so what it looked like was we were staying in a relatively nice community and a nice townhome, you know, good size, to dwindling food in the refrigerators, then eventually eviction and staying in vacant homes or in hotels for several days just temporarily. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the most sort of resounding images I have was when we stayed in a a vacant home and and really literally just slept on the carpet and we did not have refrigeration instead we had a cooler and that was our source of refrigeration but there were insects everywhere you know ants etc and we were just in a bare house and it happened to be a home of one of my mother's friends who just was generous enough to lend out to us for the time being before they sold the place. So it was completely vacant, but it was just extremely uncomfortable. And moments like those were were key points in my life where I really envisioned what i wanted life to be and how it ought to have been different and for me it was i have to make it i have to succeed mm. because this is not anything that i would ever want to repeat and furthermore uh, i would like to provide for my family and at the time family was my sister and uh, my mother
1: welcome to the breaking the glass show with tq sinkungu Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 16. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews in iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google For TQ, Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. In today's episode, I get the awesome pleasure and joy to interview my wife, Dr. Chantel Bondman Senkungu. I've been really excited to do this episode and, you know, I try to stay very professional through the whole interview, even though, you know, I'm a little bit of a clown. Uh, but we had a really good time and had fun and enjoyed the, the conversation, as you'll see. You know, with my wife, Chantel, I am amazed by her, as well as I definitely love and respect her. I'm super lucky to have her as my wife. Um, she's a physician, a family medicine doctor, and she's actually a DO, which is a doctor of osteopathy, as opposed to an MD. Uh, both medical doctors, fully licensed and professional. But with a small difference, she actually does more as a DO, and you'll hear about that in the interview. My wife is a very, very nice person, which balances me out, who sometimes I'm not the nicest guy in the world. But what that equates to is between her professionalism and excellence and her extreme kindness, she ends up being an awesome doctor who is loved and respected by her patients and her peers to the point that she's even been made a national representative or spokesperson for a startup company for a period of time while she's working with them. And then you would see her on commercials on TV on Facebook, all of her social media, Um, and that's just the kind of vibe that she gives off as a doctor. And at the same time, she started all this from the bottom. When she was growing up, she was raised by a single mother, and they, at a certain point, reached hard times that she'll discuss that put them in a place where they were homeless, um, often not much food. And that place, as you heard in the intro, is a struggle that inspired her to not be in that place again and to accomplish the goal that she had from the time that she was six or seven to be a doctor when she grew up. She was disrespected in medical school, sometimes told that she should be in the music video as opposed to at medical school. And even as a doctor, her small stature and her young look, people often question whether she's even the doctor in the situation, whether it's patients other medical professionals or administration, but she overcomes all that to be a powerful, inspiring person who you'll want to learn from. This is the first doctor I've interviewed. I've interviewed a lot of attorneys, but this is the first doctor I've interviewed. And so we also go into a lot of detail about that, what it takes for you to go through medical school, uh, to do residency, and then to ultimately to become a doctor, be successful at it. So we hope that'll help you understand those kind of things and learn and be inspired. So please enjoy the interview with my beautiful wife. My guest today is my beautiful wife, Dr. Chantel Bonman sankungu Welcome to the show, doctor.
0: Thank you, honey. It's good to be here.
1: I am glad to have you as well. This is actually an interview that I've really been looking forward to. Um, It's obviously, it's a joy being across the microphone from you as well as getting the opportunity to tell your story. I know it well myself, so sometimes it seems like that's just my wife, but I think, in fact, it's a truly uh, inspirational story that I think a lot of people hearing it are going to benefit from. So One of the things I wanted to just kind of mention is that my wife is very accomplished. Um, She's really beautiful, so sometimes it makes me nervous while I'm interviewing her. Uh, But she's also the reason I was able to be a stay-at-home dad. Uh, She, for... Almost seven years now has been my sugar mama,
0: oh My goodness,
1: working hard for the money as a doctor and providing for our family um, in the time when we needed child care for our kids. So I was able to stay home. But she started from a tough beginning in her family, in her life, which we'll hear about today. At the same time, she's a high level professional. She's highly sought after by many medical practices. She's always a demand for people to want to work for her. I've seen a number of her patients stop her in stores and the malls and different parts of the city to tell me how much they enjoyed her and when she's ever she switched jobs or not been their doctor anymore. They've tried to track her down to find her different places. Um, one or two patients have actually showed up at our home before um, to try to remind us and tell us how great of a doctor she is for them. And one company in particular actually made her the face of the company, a national face of the company. She's on commercials for them on their Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, because she's a professional, she's a great-looking person, and she's an awesome doctor. So hope you enjoy the interview today as much as I enjoy walking in life with her. So, honey, as you know, we start off with the lightning round <laughs> background, so let's talk a little bit about, about how you came up. Why don't you tell the people what life was like for you growing up as a youngster in the City of Angels?
0: I actually enjoyed life, I'd say. Um you know, I was raised by a single mother who was an awesome woman, just in so many facets. Um, and uh, for the first eight years of my life, it was just mommy and I. And my father had two additional daughters. And although we didn't live together, my sisters and I became very close over the years. So as a child, my mother was just an awesome always an icon for me and a a mentor, someone I admired very much. And so uh, she... For the first nine years, or eight years, it was just she and I, and she would take me places for fun, and her ideas of fun were theatrical plays, or or events uh, that were social in in nature. Um,
1: And not just, she didn't just take you to watch plays, she actually was in the plays (laughs) performing herself.
0: Yeah, she was an actress. Um, I feel as though every Saturday, or every weekend, we had at least ten things on the agenda, and It was always astonishing to me that our lives were so uh, vivacious and exciting. But uh, often, outside of the lights and the banners, shining colors, we would do simple things like visit people at nursing homes um, during our downtime or spend time in hospitals, just simply visiting people that we did not know. Um, And for me, that served as a, a good foundation of Establishing empathy and just a connection with other humans. Um, when I was eight, my younger sister, my youngest sister, I should say, arrived, and and she was the spotlight or the joy in my life. Uh, she is what motivated me to actually become a physician. And at the time, you know, I was again seven during the pregnancy, eight when my sister arrived. Uh, At seven is when I, while accompanying my mother to her doctor's appointments during her pregnancy at seven is when I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm. And so it was through observing uh, my mother's relationships with her physicians and also the developing baby uh, that I found what I would consider to be my mission. My mm-hmm. lifelong mission and God-inspired uh, mission and calling.
1: What um, what was one of the things that stood out to you that was like, man, I want to do that? Is it the overall development process in your mom or was there any one thing that stood out for you?
0: I think the most poignant element of, of the pregnancy in general was just like, wow, you know, there's... There's a flat abdomen and (laughs) eventually it it grows and along with it, you you feel a baby kicking one day and then we can look via ultrasound and actually see that there's a life in there. You know, there was at one point no life and then there's life. And Mm. then um, it's just beautiful to me to to watch the transformation, not only of my mother's body, but just of this growing baby. Um, And so I, I think it was just, I don't know if that answers the question. But overall, it's just watching the process of life from beginning to, um, well, continuance, really.
1: Um, And what about in terms of the life other than that? I always ask people, were you uh, upper class, middle class, low class, no class? What what level were you guys at?
0: I think during my youngest uh, or earliest years, I always considered us to be middle class. Mm. And it's funny because, you know, at five, what do you know? <laughs> or at six, seven, eight. But it's it's funny that you ask because it was something that was constantly on my mind. Like, I think we're kind of, we're doing well. And for me, middle class is doing well. Um, however, at the age of 11... Uh, My mother was injured while at work, and that just completely changed our trajectory personally and financially. And so at that point, it was very clearly we went from being comfortable to uncomfortable and poor.
1: (laughs) What did that look like? How did that feel like?
0: Yeah, so what it looked like was we were staying in a relatively nice community in a, a nice townhome, you know, good size Via or, or by uh, Los Angeles standards, a nice sized home, and we were comfortable to dwindling food in the refrigerators, right. uh, and then eventually eviction and staying in vacant homes yeah. or in hotels for several days, just temporarily. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the most sort of resounding images I have. Was when we stayed in a, a vacant home and and really literally just slept on the carpet, wow. and we did not have refrigeration. Instead, we had a cooler, and that was our source of refrigeration. But there were insects everywhere, you wow. know, ants, etc. And we were just in a bare house, and it happened to be a home of one of my mother's friends who just was was generous enough to lend out to us for the time being before yeah. they sold the place so it was completely vacant but it was just extremely uncomfortable and moments like those were were key points in my life where yeah. I I really envisioned what I wanted life to be and how it ought to have been different or how I wanted it to change. Uh, and for me, it was, I have to make it. I have to succeed mm. because this is not anything that I would ever want to repeat. And furthermore, uh, I would like to provide for my family. And at the time, family was my sister and uh, my mother.
1: And where is your dad during all this?
0: Yeah, so my dad, during the early years, I'd say he was consistently present um but on a very sporadic basis
1: okay consistent and sporadic
0: yeah so he was spur- regularly sporadic okay. if that makes any sense you yeah. know like we could de- i could depend on seeing him you know maybe a few times a year uh so and, and that changed over time, uh but during the roughest years i mean he he was local uh and maybe accessible, but just not very active. Mm.
1: Do you yeah. have any idea why
0: i I don't have the specifics you know i I haven't really as an adult spent much time probing him, yeah, and my mother was always very. Uh, she was always very private about personal matters, mm-hmm. and then also I think just protective yeah you know she she always wanted to display the best in everyone, and right. so in that manner she wasn 't always the most i think t- transparent or revealing, yeah. you know so uh, I think, well, I, I'm certain as to, like, in, I believe until I was about five, perhaps, uh, he struggled with drug use, mm. you know, and this is something he shares now in his ministry. You know, he's a, a Christian comedian, and and part of what he does is go around the country and just share how his life has been transformed, but he was deeply... Addicted to crack cocaine, not sure of all the other drugs uh, that he used, but certainly I think at his peak was using about $1,000 a week in crack cocaine. Mm. Um, also, he was at a certain point a porn star, mm. uh, exotic dancer. He he as well was an actor, and that is how he and my mother met. Yeah, And so he traveled very frequently I think you know for the first maybe eight years of my life so that's where he was just sort of all over (laughs)
1: yeah I think and I like you said um have a great relationship with him now and he's definitely turned his life around God has changed his life um but I know during those early years Mm -hmm. not having him there um must have been tough even though now like he in fact he married he married us he performed our marriage ceremony and Um, We go to his comedy shows, his Christian comedian shows, and he's great now. But I think during those years, did you, um, those times when you were staying in vacant homes and kind of traveling different places and thinking about what the future would be like, how did you stay motivated to be able to to persevere through that? Because some people don't make it out of those circumstances, but you were able to, obviously you're a doctor now, but during those years, can you think back to what, pushed you through the challenges to pursue the goals that you had
0: oh certainly Uh, so number one was i always reflected on the history of our family and so we have some pretty amazing matriarchs namely you know my mother my my so right now I'm referring to my maternal side although I have wonderful matriarchs on both um but my grandmother my maternal grandmother was very actively involved um in my life early on and historically I know that this woman picked cotton mm. <laughs> you know and Your she grandmother. my grandmother picked cotton in the rural part of Florida, wow. and um, and in visiting her during the summers, it was very apparent that <laughs> not much had changed by way of development. I mean, they were literally still, well, her sister's still living in the home of their childhood, which had not really been updated much. Uh, and so knowing that my grandmother had not been a slave, but was pretty poor and dropped out of school, I believe in the fourth grade out yeah. of necessity to take care of, of her siblings and family. And that was one thing that always compelled me or motivated me to do better. Yeah. You know, she's a loving woman, uh, but educationally there were some deficits and, uh, and so I thought, Hey, you know, this, this is my lineage and, and, uh, the, these women have worked hard to get me to where I'm I'm going. So my grandmother, who, who worked tremendously difficult, um, she served as a motivating factor. Also, um, our, our struggles financially, um, with, in ours, meaning my mother uh, and sister and I uh, being homeless and, and seeing how hard my mother worked even previous to that without the support of a, a loving husband, Helped to also motivate me because I wanted to to really succeed so that yeah. I could in turn take care of her. Right, uh, and also, you know, the absence of my father made me strong. Yeah, and the indignation that I did have towards him just um, inspired me to work very hard and say, I will put my best effort forth with everything that I do. Yeah. And I don't think failure was on the radar for me right. until much later, maybe med school. It uh, was when, when I began to fear failure. But before that, it was just determination, and I'm going to do very well because because the opportunities that have been afforded me came on the back of slaves. And then pre, or after that, my grandmother, who worked very hard, and right. then my mother and aunts, and so... Oh, and additionally, just the community in which I came. You know, everywhere around me, well, in the inner city of Los Angeles, it was very apparent that African-Americans, we are on the bottom mm. in performance from an educational standpoint. Uh, our schools were dilapidated, if that's the right term. Yeah, yeah. Uh, health-wise, we have very poor health outcomes, Um and And then, just the violence that was very um, apparent in in the community in which I came also compelled me to say we need we need uh, success successes, and we need individuals to accomplish much to carry back to our community so that we can um, progress or move forward.
1: and you wanted to be one of those people, obviously.
0: I did. I wanted to be a ground shaker and...
1: Glass breaker.
0: (laughs) A glass breaker, (laughs) yeah.
1: Now, you said opportunities. Your mom hooked you up with an awesome opportunity educationally. Why don't you talk about that in terms of your high school experience?
0: Sure. Education was something that was never compromised in our household. And so in the beginning years of school, so from kindergarten through fifth grade, I attended just a local... uh, school, a uh, pub- public elementary school. And then it became apparent that that was not the school for me. It was not a good fit educationally. Yeah, because uh, they weren't that strong. They weren't strong. And I began to stand out in the classroom settings. And what does that look like? Usually uh, when the child is not challenged, then <laughs> you're the child is in trouble. And so for me, for instance, in the fifth grade, there was some contention between me and my fifth grade teacher because I was very offended that our spelling words were three letters in the fifth grade. I thought yeah. it was highly inappropriate to have the the letter or the letter I, the capital letter letter I as a spelling word. Yeah. Um, also the letter what, or excuse me, the word was, I just was highly offended and I let the teacher know. Yeah. So, Hello, Miss Lutton. Um, can you please give us more of a challenge? And that resulted in me, um, Getting in big trouble, I'll say yeah. that uh, and punished and not uh, i was I was banned from recess and had to just sit in the yard Jeez. and things like that. So my mother said, uh, this has escalated to the point in which we need to take remove Chantel from the school. And right. so she did her research and um, got me into Chadwick School, which is a highly prestigious. Kindergarten through twelfth grade school located in Palos Verdes.
1: Yeah, super rich area, part of Los Angeles.
0: Very much the so, Los Angeles area. Yeah, yeah, and the country.
1: Yeah, yeah, richest place. Actually, I think Donald Trump's his golf course in California is in Palos Verdes. It is in that same neighborhood area where your school was. So, what, um, what was Chad? What did she do to get you in a Chadwick?
0: Yeah. So. She she was great at finding community resources. And there was an organization like the Minority Alliance of Student Affairs, which um, gave access to inner city, gave inner city children access to uh, schools that we would have not otherwise perhaps known about. Yeah. Um, and so we applied through them. Uh, they sort of introduced me to Chadwick. There was a brief interview process, and then I was accepted into the school.
1: And financial assistance came with that as well?
0: It did, yes.
1: And Chadwick is a school I think now costs something like thirty-five, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year.
0: Yes, I wouldn't be surprised. And, yeah.
1: and you got to go to it, and your sister, you got to go through it from what grade to what grade?
0: So I was there from sixth grade until high school graduation. Um, and we... So far as I know, I didn't have perhaps a full scholarship every year, um, which, again, uh, really magnified my mother's sort of hard work. Because if if it were between paying the bills like a utility bill and our school tuition she paid the school tuition yeah and so again that always was a part of my mental <laughs> armamentarium or you know my my toolkit or weaponry for attacking all of the challenges ahead of me you know just knowing the sacrifice that went into everything at Chadwick I was very much a misfit socially mm.
1: okay so you went from one place where you stood out academically to another Mm -hmm. place we stood out socially Mm -hmm. how was that type of experience like what what in what way were you a social standout
0: yeah so i think within my first few months of being at chadwick you know a couple of the students were surprised that i folded my own clothes and Mm -hmm. that uh and that I did not live in a five-bedroom home or have a horse to gallop <laughs> well to ride on on the weekends. I mean, they were really, truly um, stunned by that. Um, and and so I like fit out from this. <laughs>
1: everybody don't have horses they ride around
0: on at their house? <laughs> right, exactly. And so socially I just didn't exactly fit. And then, too, um, they... They're in a community that was very much closed. I think there's been a lot of change in the, since I was there. But at the time, there was a very small sort of exclusive community that I just wasn't a part of. Yeah, And so also... I had a wider scope of reality, in my opinion, than they did. Right. And so... Because of
1: all uh, the stuff your mom had you doing.
0: Yeah, had, that she had me doing. Um, you know, the, what I consider to be real life, that not everyone is wealthy. We don't all have nannies and and drivers and elevators in our homes. But some people do struggle. Or yeah. some people, you know, they do well. But it looks differently than what you guys understand to be the norm. Right, And so that difference in... And just insight often presented challenges and that, you know, people just thought I was odd or unusual or they didn't understand some of my frustrations. Right. Um,
1: What kind of frustration did you have?
0: So I'd say by the time we entered the ninth grade at Chadwick, a very substantial percentage of the students were experimenting with drugs Mm. and or alcohol. And, you know, a couple of my rather close classmates or, or, or friends who I was, um, well, classmates that were friends of mine, um, they they would have regular parties and the, the parents would supply them with the drugs for the parties because wow. the, the the rationale was, you know, if you're going to do it, we might as well help you do it in a safe place. Jeez. Uh and the juxtaposition was that I would go home, right? I didn't live in this community. My mother would transport us. Once we got evicted, we were uh, we we were living maybe twenty five miles away from wow. the school, and yeah. so we were living back in the inner city of Inglewood or Los Angeles. And there, I had friends outside of Chadwick, and you know, my my friends on the weekends and. Um, they couldn't walk down the sidewalk without getting frisked by the police, right. right? And and for being searched for no reason other than we suspect that you may have something on you, some yeah. marijuana or whatever. And so I was able to see, wait, and there's the inequity side. here
1: you have parents supplying right the kids with the drugs
0: exactly yeah and so that was a, a large frustration of mine mm. and you know the kids just thought i was some angry <laughs> brown child in the school but yeah. it, there was a lot more that fed into my dismay
1: it's interesting um you know like i i i, I think your story is interesting because you lived the life of this disparity like you straddled the both worlds of this extreme privilege on one side when you are in school and the opposite when you were at home you know if you even had a home from at time to time and right. and the thing that that amazes me is that you perceived it like you perceived the frustration and could articulate it in your mind in a certain way at you know 13 14 15 whereas many 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 other kids don't even have the language to to understand and appreciate the frustration they're feeling and then articulate it. So, so the way that they process it sometimes is not as well, I don't think because they don't even have a name for it, but you, um, obviously were able to, even though you're frustrated, navigate through it and articulate it in a way that I think hopefully helps people understand why there are these frustrations about the inequities that exist and the stress that that could put on someone who was in your shoes.
0: Right. And, um, Often, so I, I was very involved in sports. Yeah. You know me, like that's one thing that drew us together. Oh yeah, balling, I love- <laughs> ball until
1: we falling. One of our <laughs> first dates was a little one-on-one basketball game.
0: Yes, we both love sports. Um, and so because it was only my mother, who was the source of transportation almost always, um, what my day would look like, Let's say during basketball season, was I'd be at school maybe at seven in the morning.
1: And what time you have to get up to go to, to be at school by seven?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess six. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> I really don't remember. Yeah, um, but I had never really been much of an of an early bird. Right. But I will say six. Be at school at around seven. Hang out there uh, until classes start. Started and then have basketball practice, which was after school and maybe basketball practice was until six o'clock. Yeah. Um, Or on game days, basketball, say we had an away game, we would go travel far, uh, like maybe an hour away and then be there for several hours, come back because my mother was not always able to go to those away games, although she came to as many as she could. But when they were super far, um, I'd be back to school at maybe around 10 and then have to wait for my mother to drive and pick me up. And there were nights where I was waiting until 1 in the morning on campus. And then go home and maybe try to complete some homework, so sleep a couple of hours, and then I was at it again. And I would be at school on campus waiting on my own, in the dark, you know late hours of the night, early yeah. morning, several occasions, mm. um, and so these again were things that my classmates didn't know about um, and i I did not. I feel have always have the the words to share at right. the time or, or even know who would be interested in, in right. hearing. But it, it made school definitely a challenge. Yeah. Um, and I dreaded nearly every day that mm. I was at Chadwick and wow. I did not come to appreciate the experience until after I had left. <laughs>
1: but you made it through. So yeah. you made it through the Chadwick experience graduated, I, yeah. I mean, and, and fortunately your sister too had the opportunity to go through from kindergarten to graduating high school Yes, through Chadwick as well, well and get the benefit of that experience. And then you, so you've persevered from seven years old seeing her born to now you're graduating high school and it's time to go to, to college. Um,
2: right.
1: uh, one of the things I wanted to say quickly is for, especially for people in LA, look for these resources in your city. It's unfortunate that in some ways the schools that we live around aren't always the best. Um, if you can help make them better, do all you can to do that. If it's not possible for you in a reasonable amount of time for you or your kids, there are resources like the ones that Chantel mentioned to, to get into, to be able to help you get into schools that can give you an opportunity to pursue what you want to. But there's going to be hard work that you saw, uh, yourself to go through to get there. But like I said, you made it through and then you went to college. Where did you, where did you end up going to school and college?
0: Yeah, so <laughs> by the time I left Chadwick, I was well over being the representative for all Black <laughs> American <laughs> girls in in the country and right. answering all of the questions about hairstyles, etc., and right. what 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 do Black people think about this and that? So I was exhausted. And, uh, so I said, it will be a historically black college right. and university. Uh, and so when selecting that said, well, I I'd like to go to the best or the one that would prepare me the most to become a physician. Uh, I had a friend of mine, her name is Kalaki and she's now also a physician, but she went to college years ahead of me and she chose Xavier. And so I researched Xavier a bit and figured that was the best school for me. I knew that my path would be college and then medical school and then residency and that the, the percentages would revert back demographically to what they were while I was at Chadwick. Right. So I said, I need a respite. Yeah. And what better way than to go to an HBCU with high performance and also leave California for a bit. I love the South. And so it, it was an excellent It was an excellent experience.
1: And just real briefly, I want to say that y'all heard words so far like armamentarium and respite and things like that from my wife. She's got an extraordinary large vocabulary. You may hear a lot of words on this interview for the first time that you heard today. I'm hearing some of them for the first time. But I tell y'all, when I was looking for a wife, I said I wanted a wife who could teach me vocabulary words because I had a pretty big vocabulary. But I wanted a wife that could help me do that. So just know that your prayers can be answered in a wife uh, when she uses the big words. Or sometimes small words you never heard of before. I just wanted to put that in. In case y'all keep hearing words, you pause and go get the dictionary. Mm-hmm. I'm writing them down for myself as well or using context clues. But anyway, you were saying you wanted to be at HBCU to respite and be with all the <laughs> black people.
0: Yeah, I think you're so cute.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I did. I, I I wanted to be around my people. I wanted to know what does it feel like? to just simply be appreciated for being a student. Yeah. You know, and and be a student and, yeah. and be able to focus on studies mm-hmm. as opposed to all of these other factors. Like yeah. what does it feel like to be the majority? Mm. And what I learned was that you know, there there are difficulties in, in being in the majority as well. I mean, I think you, it 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 actually allowed me to have a deeper understanding of of what white people may go through, Hmm. um, and always being the majority. You don't have, you don't, you don't sense that, that the norm may be for someone else different than what it is for you because you establish the norm. Norms in culture, norms in, you know, like fashion and language and, you know, uh, pop culture sort of things. And so, um, at Xavier, you know, there were some Asians and a couple of of white people. And so it it just it gave me a good understanding of, hey, this is what I just feel normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so maybe this is what it feels like um for um, Caucasians. And so I would like to add, though, that, Part of why Chadwick was so excruciating was because when we lived in Inglewood, and Inglewood is the hood. I'm sure many people know about Inglewood thanks to the movies. Um, What are some of the popular movies from Inglewood?
1: Well, the Lakers played there for a long time. Oh, yeah. Or the Wood was actually the the movie as well. (laughs) Plus now the Rams and the Chargers are going to have their stadium in Inglewood. Exactly. So it's becoming very... Much a popular city, yeah. City of Champions. It's
0: on the map. And the City of Champions is going to be a different color. Yeah. Uh, and so when I was there, there was a lot of gang activity. Um, There's a community nearby called the the Bottoms, mm. and that was like the local apartment uh, <laughs> zoo and not necessarily the projects, but definitely the low, like a step lower above, class. yeah, step above the projects. And that's where we li- we lived, just streets away from that. But associated with that was, you know, the assigned home school was Morningside, that's yeah. where Lisa Leslie went, actually. Right. Uh, and so. During one of my basketball tournaments with Chadwick, um, I think the coach, well, coaches would would very frequently see me and say, hey, we'd like for her to be on our team. Coaches from
1: other schools. From other schools, because
0: unfortunately, Chadwick and, you know, this may be a bit controversial, but... um, Oftentimes, the students who got a lot of game time were students who um, their parents were contributors financially. Yeah, Yeah, donors um, and are part of booster club. Mm. Not to say that their their children were not um, talented on the basketball court, but I was very driven. And there was a time in which my goals in life were to become a WNBA player, a physician. And then later, a stay-at-home mom, nice. <laughs> and sort of in that order. And so, I was really determined to do well in the WNBA yeah. and become a professional basketball player. And you
1: were a ball girl with them, and
0: yes, I was. I did work for the WNBA uh, for a few years. Um, and so, the the point is that I w- I was determined to do whatever. I could to to be the best player that I could be and also to contribute to the team. However, I was not one of the popular students and I and I felt as though the coach um was sort of prejudiced yeah. against me because I didn't fit socially. Not right. so much because of my my ethnicity, but just social misfit. She actually told another player that one reason she did not like me. This is a coach told another player that one reason why she had a hard time with me was because I reminded her of players that she played with at the community college that she went to. Hmm. Um, And because my my parents were not as involved, I didn't have as much advocacy, you know, when things were unfair as the other students did. And so the bottom line is that I looked and said, hey, mom, we have Morningside High School right down the street. Don't yeah. have to wake up early. It's going to be easy education. Yeah, uh, And then I can do well with with basketball. Forget the scholastics. Like, that will come. <laughs> WNBA is coming. Yeah. And my mom said, absolutely not. Hmm. And she she never relented. And I'm happy she didn't because Chadwick was good for me in the long run. But she never relented to compromising school. Um and so you asked about Xavier.
1: Yeah, like so mm-hmm. you you ended up at Xavier, and uh, now and pe- so people know the the plurality of Black doctors in America come from Xavier University. They're trained there, so
0: yeah. At one point, the statistic I believe was ninety percent of all African American physicians ninety in the country came from Xavier.
2: Jeez. Yeah.
0: That, at one point. Now, I don't know if that's statistical. So I,
1: I, I say plurality because maybe it was the majority, but it sounds like it, maybe it was the majority. Um, So a lot of like Dr. Xavier is you're going to HBCU, but less anyone think and I don't know why they would, but they might think, well, if you want to go to school, HBCU might not be the best preparation. This is the best place you could have gone to to be a doctor mm-hmm. if you wanted to.
0: Oh, yes. And they were strict. It yeah. was something I was not prepare, prepared for. Yeah. You know, I, Strict like how? Like um, everything that I had heard about college prior to college entry was that college is party time and, you know, you expand personally. You, you have fun. You get your degree and you keep moving. Uh, and so coming from Chadwick, which is one of the most difficult schools in the country, um, to... Um, to go to, um, based off of the work and all of that. Um, Coming from Chadwick, I sort of had a big eagle. Like, I am going to HBCU. It's not Harvard. It's not Stanford. Mm. It's not Brown. So I should be good. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm graduating from a school where the, the students are the cream of the crop. So what's Xavier? And boy, was I surprised. <laughs> I could not believe it. You know, I was thinking I'm going to have fun. I may meet meet a husband down here. and Nope. And, <laughs> nope. <laughs> and then uh, party and get good grades and it'll be easy. I mean, we were studying all night, every night. It was crazy. yeah. Um, and it was fun. I had great roommates, um, many of which I'm still friends with now. You were um, on the
1: homecoming court?
0: Oh, yes. Eventually, <laughs> I was. Yeah, just because uh, you find. fine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so, uh, but I got there, and I'm like, hey, it's the weekend. I'm from L.A. We don't just sit around, you know, and my mother was so active. We always had things to do. I got to Xavier. And I mean, things shut down at like 7 p.m. on Friday. And I thought it was absolutely insane. Yeah, And all there was to do was our work. (laughs) It's like, this is not why I came to college. So
1: was that something that you imposed on yourself? Or is that something you feel like the school imposed on you?
0: So... I think I I think both of those. Okay. Uh, So I had to study because the work was hard, (laughs) and and that was a shock. I mean, Xavier was nothing to play with. Right. Um, And so I think as is true with a lot of HBCUs, entrance into the university is easy. Why? Because they want to educate everyone. I mean, that's the mission. But remaining there may not be that easy because it's it's not. It's it's game time. It's not time to play. And so I think it was difficult just because the work was rigorous and they're serious about their reputation as Xavier University. You know, they they want to produce a certain type of student Um, and they really did care about our education and what we learned and gained from it. So um, the work was hard. Um, now they supported us through it, but it was difficult. So we had to study, and yeah. then number two, just the culture was: you're not going to get here and start playing around. So okay. uh, what it looked like was the dorms, uh, freshman dorms. They're
2: um, like the they're, RAs.
0: Well, yeah, they're they're sectioned off. They're not unisex dorms. Oh, um, they
1: they are unisex or they're not unisex? Not.
0: So they're so,
1: more than one sex or they are one sex?
0: Sorry, they're unisex dorms.
1: Yeah, one. They, yeah, one. Yes, unisex. So
0: they're unisex dorms. Okay, so and there's the, no
1: mixture of sexes in the dorms.
0: Not freshmen, and so like there's the male dorms, and the girls could maybe sit in the lobby, hmm. uh, and then there's the the female dorms, and the guys can maybe sit in the lobby. But that's as close as you're getting to anybody's dorm room. Hmm. And then we had like the the dorm mothers is what I used to call them, and if you we're going to spend the night somewhere other than your dorm, a letter was getting sent home to your parents to notify them about it.
1: And they knew Um, if you weren't spending the night in your room. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I'm sure people got away with all sorts of things, but that was the expectation. Right. Um, And, and again, I was shocked because this was not college as I had expected it. I mean, there were clear expectations and standards, good ones, but it was very strict.
1: Yeah. Sounds like me at the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. I had it probably about as bad as we did.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, that's cool. So uh, on the one hand, because it forced you, it sounds like, to become a high-quality student. Right. And prepare yourself for the rigors of medical school. Mm-hmm. What, um, what Before we go to medical school, can you talk about, you mentioned before being the majority versus being the minority. Are there any other things that you felt different about? Because there are a lot of people, like I grew up in Allen, Texas, where I was always the only black person in the class, was majority white at the time. So some people may go from one environment to another and wonder at HBCU, um, how does it feel different beyond the stuff you mentioned before? Are there any ways that you could say like this was a positive thing or unexpected thing, or perhaps even a negative thing about being an HBCU?
0: Yeah. I, I, number one, it was very empowering, right? Because I realized that again, I thought I was smart. I thought college would be easy and there were there were amazing academians yeah at Xavier, hmm. who who likely were more impoverished than I was, mm. um, some of which came from New Orleans and not the good parts of New Orleans yeah. or other just rural areas, and they were brilliant. Yeah, um, and they actually some of them could just walk into a classroom without studying and ace an A. C. N. exam. Yeah, uh, and and so it was empowering to me to know that hey, there are a lot of us who aren't just sitting on stoops and singing songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah, but then we can do that too. Is the yeah, cool right. thing. Y'all like can, we can see
1: walk. You can, can, can... You yeah. can do this, what do they call it? The Harlem Shake. Yeah, then you go in the class and we ace it with the best of them.
0: Yeah, we could do the Johnny. Was it was it a dance in New Orleans? We can okay. do everything. We can get down, have fun. But we are smart. Yeah, and we care about education. Um, so it or, was or very. Have, you
1: had swag, as the kids today would say.
0: Oh yeah, we had swag. A okay. lot of swag. Okay. Yeah, and that was cool too. Like knowing that I. I didn't stand out because my shoes matched my shirt because culturally that's a norm for me. Whereas at Chadwick, I mean, people had all sorts of comments for me (laughs) every day because I chose to match or, you know, I liked my shoes. So um, I I was I was very much excited about that. Uh, we, We were the cohort of students that were not portrayed on TV or in the movies uh, or in the media. And so that was exciting to me. Um, Also, I learned that there is a lot of division within our community. Mm. You know, we have our own, uh, we have racism amongst each other. Like we, we, there's a lot of self hate within the black Mm. community. I mean, one day in class, um, one of the one of my classmates asked me, he was like, Do you like living around black people? And I just know my mouth was had fallen wide open. Right. Like, wait, I don't understand the question. Like, I'm black, you're black. What do you mean? It's whole school black. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you mean am I tired of living around black people? That would insinuate that I'm tired of living around myself, my mom, my dad, like you. And he was his response was, well, I'm tired, I can't stand it. You know, I need a break because we're so hood and we're so this and that, but not really um, connect the fact that he is identifying with him. I mean, part of what he hated is himself. himself. Um, And so there's a lot of that or, you know, quick to get angry, beat someone up over shoes or whatever. He looked at me funny. Um, Things did get dangerous at times uh, within the first semester, I think. Sometimes it was an open campus, and the local community stragglers um I shouldn't say stragglers, but people would come to Xavier number one because Xavier was nearly seventy percent female
2: right
0: and and so it was a very popular place for uh, men in Louisiana to come and just hang out because there are a lot of like models at Xavier and just, yeah, and smart and just a lot of women, a high concentration. And so men would come just to meet, meet us. And so uh, on one occasion, a, a guy sort of got mad at a Xavier male student. And then we have gunshots erupting on campus in front of the dorm. And so, you know, just the propensity to, to get violent was a sort of a negative. Um, first semester, people got shot across the street from the dorm Students. at a at a party. Now that I I didn't really get the details, yeah, on. Um, but, but they were they were injured. They were yeah, and and that it was easy to come by. Mm. Uh, but also another good thing was that I realized that. We do have a lot of diversity within the African-American black community. Yeah. yeah. Um, black people from Los Angeles, very different than black people from Oakland or San Francisco yeah. or from Arizona or, or, or Cincinnati or Texas. And that was something that was not obvious to me before going yeah. to. And maybe it should have been because everyone's from a different region. But it made me happy. Like we are not all the same. We have very unique differences beyond what we look like. Um, Just culturally, we're so rich. Right. And I really appreciated that part of it. So Xavier taught me a lot.
1: Very nice. Yeah. So it prepared you well for medical school. You ended up going. You went to Western Medical University.
0: Western? University College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. Very long.
1: Very long name. We'll call it Western Medical School for sure, or Western. Um, At Western, one thing from a a sort of technical perspective, something people might have picked up is doctor of osteopathy. So you're not an MD, you're a DO. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, number one, why did you choose the DO route? Because there are a number of other medical schools you could have gone to. Mm -hmm. And what is a DO as compared to an MD? um, and, and are you a lesser doctor, a more doctor, <laughs> or a different kind of doctor? Talk about that, please. It's
0: a great question. Yes. In America, there are two different types of medical doctors. So there are the allopathic physicians and there are osteopathic physicians, again, both of which are medical physicians or doctors. We, 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 both do four years of medical school training. Uh, The difference in the medical school training is that the osteopathic philosophy is one in which we try to emphasize the body's inherent ability to heal itself. And and there's a very comprehensive approach. And just to simplify it, the osteopathic approach is considered to be more of a mechanical approach, whereas uh, allopathic is... A sort of a chemical c- approach is one way to describe it, and so, like if your car's um, if your car has a flat tire, the function of the car changes because yeah. of the flat tire. Right. When you put air in it, it functions better or as it should, and that's simply by changing the mechanics. And so the body is similar in that um, you, you have hundreds of bones in your body, hundreds of muscles, hundreds of um, just all sorts of tissues. And and sometimes you can have a headache because there's just a malalignment in the bottom of your back. And so the problem is really not the headache, Yeah. Um, but the problem is maybe the bone that's rotated out of place. And so in, in osteopathic school, we're taught in addition to surgery and in addition to maybe just giving you a Tylenol for the pain, we're taught how to put our hands on you and and change the mechanics of your body, which then changes uh, the the physiology and how you feel. On the contrary, the, um, in allopathic school, it's more of the uh, biochemical approach. Um, our approach is, is we have an additional tool set or so toolkit.
1: If I could say this, that the DO or uh, doctors of osteopathy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that you are,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you
1: do what an MD does, allopathic medicine, plus all this bio uh, mechanical solutions right. to problems
0: right so i know how to put my hands on you to to help your body feel better and when
1: she said put your hands on some people might think she <laughs> might, might fight you to yeah. get you. you know she ain't gonna put hands on like that but i've seen her she, my wife is you know five foot two maybe 105 pounds of rocks in her shoes mm-hmm. but she can take a man who's 250 pounds 300 pounds and turn his body in a way or you know bend his back or lift his leg or twist his arm around or turn your neck in a certain way that'll reposition bones or stretch muscles in your body over a period of time that'll solve a problem that you may be treating with um, drugs. And um, Mm -hmm. she's helped me before. She's helped a number of other people um, in different ways and solve the actual problem as opposed to covering it up with medicine
0: right and CPR in and of itself where you're just pumping someone's chest why because their their heart isn't able to pump on its own or pump well or sufficiently is a way of using your hand to do what the body already does Hmm. and so there are a lot of other things that you can do similarly to help the body by using your hands if you really understand that the body's anatomy and physiology so for instance you have sinus congestion there are techniques that you can utilize to open up your sinuses in addition to the nasal sprays and the decongestants yeah. etc well so- i'll tell
1: you an example i learned as her as her husband we were dating at the time and we we're taking care of this friend's baby who was <laughs> constipated and this baby she cute little girl um she was really badly constipated and they were trying all these different things. But my wife just, um, she like, if you imagine your stomach underneath your ribs is a box. So like there's a square on the front of your stomach. If you can imagine that you just got to press up on the corners of the box or on the bottom part or press down on the bottom corners of the box for the top part of the box. And when you do that, it just released like a torrent of poop from this baby. (laughs) I mean, this diaper was so full of feces. It must've been in there for weeks. Um, but the thing is, when I had my first son, I started doing the same thing. So if he ever had trouble using a bathroom, we would I'd pump his little stomach and he would just <laughs> let loose. So and you don't have to give him any drugs or, or uh, what do you call those things? Suppositories or right. uh, what are those things that make you use the bathroom? the Like diuretics or yeah. any of those kind of things to help them get better. You just touch your hand, So no chemicals touch your body. And the baby felt a lot better. The mom was so thankful that there was a way to do that without having to use drugs. So that's one example. But why did you choose that path as opposed to um, the the MD route?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, as I mentioned, around the sixth grade, my mother, who was the sole income earner for our household, uh, she a window fell on her hand while at work, and she was right-handed. The window slammed on the back of her right hand. This led to like permanent nerve damage in that in that arm and a type of nerve damage which really spreads. And so inevitably she was incapacitated and unable to work. And so that's what led to, you know, our poverty and homelessness and, and hardship. And also though she then required a series of doctor's appointments, like on a routine basis. Um, and so, I would watch her go from physician to physician to physician um, without any apparent improvement in her health. And so um, I said there has to be a better way. And there was a summer in which I was um, at Stanford, actually, and um, at their medical school and learning pretty much. It was a simulation of a, a medical school experience. But I was in college at the time and um and so it seemed, it seemed fun and exciting, but I, I just thought while I was there it, that there has to be more to medicine than just this, than yeah. what we're learning. Right. Um, and at the same time, I mentioned that Xavier does an excellent job of preparing the students. And so from month one of being at Xavier, they would release our, our – so they would send students – all the pre-medical students, like letters of our chances of getting into professional schools, and these and this was based off of our grades. So, professional um,
1: schools including
2: doctors, including
0: opt- optometry, veterinarian school, dentists, um, dental school. Um, but then it always had two different types of medical school. There was the allopathic school and the osteopathic school. Okay, and I never really paid attention to to what that meant um, until I was at Stanford. And I mm. said, well, let me actually investigate what is this whole DO thing? What is osteopathic medicine? And once I read about the philosophy and just the approach to, to human care um, and medical care and medicine, uh, it just resonated with me because right. I thought, again, I'm becoming a physician not just for myself um, because if I were solely aim to be a physician because of personal motivation, I would have failed a long time ago. But it was really to be able to bring back um, service to my community and and to my family. I Mm. watched my mom just suffer. Her health continued to deteriorate. And I wanted to know enough to be able to help her. And so it was osteopathic medicine was my choice starting that summer. Because Mm. you
1: felt like it wouldn't just cover the problems. You'd also solve the problem.
0: Yeah. And that I, I wanted to always have the the largest amount of, of information I could in approaching disease yeah. and problems. And so why not have this additional skill set? Got it. You know.
1: Got it. Good. So working in the community is a, a theme that you return back to. Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk about that plus medical school and uh, college can be very expensive, but you found a way to help get it paid for. Why don't you talk about how those two sort of intersected in your education?
0: Okay. So college and getting it paid for. Um, So my mother, while I was at med school or excuse me, in college was never able to give me more than $5. Um, she, She, she could never afford more than $5 during my entire four years of, of school. Hmm. I think that was all that she was able to give me. Um, and then my dad, I think he may have given me $50 during all four years of college. And so, um, my aim was always self-sufficiency. Yeah. And,
1: um, and you didn't have like a rich uncle somewhere or relative or somewhere ready to drop it in either.
0: No, I actually, on my paternal side, um, was the first to graduate from college in my family. Wow. And my mother on my maternal side, I believe she was the first to graduate from college, but she graduated just right before I did. Yeah. Um, and so, no, we, we, we did not come from a wealthy background. And so, um, when it came to college, I found myself after the first semester in need of money. We were, I think I was $2,000 short of, of uh, tuition expenses. And, and I didn't have any mutual fund or I don't know, any right. endowment Nothing. to dip into. And so it was really by the grace of God. Like, I mean, I, I prayed. I had called my, my father and he sort of blamed me for going to college in the first place. Um, he blamed my situation on having chose college rather than just going to a community college. Um, And so that was a painful pill to swallow, but I was like, I got to keep moving. Okay, you're not going to give me money? Uh, I need to search. And so I prayed about it. And do you know, like God is so good because um, during this time, just spontaneously, actually a family friend just sent me money. I think it was like $200, but I had not shared what was happening with me. And that was was a blessing. And then um, I talked to miss Pearl Jones, who was a a teacher I had our professor I had connected well with and and I share with her my situation and she found this the scholarship money within Xavier to give me so nice. that I was able to complete um the the semester because had I not been able to, I think I would have had to maybe repeat the entire semester um, wow, and so with paying for college, it was just a matter of I have to find resources, and also I'll mention this that um after returning home, I believe during the summer following my freshman year, my mother, um, before I left, I think we were staying in a, like a back house of a, a family friend. And so we did have temporarily a home and possessions were there. And so when I returned, I said, hmm, Mom, like, OK, now we're sleeping in a vacant house. Um, we have no home. Where is all of our stuff? Like, where are the photo albums that I have so much cherished since I was three? Mm. And where are, like, where is my violin? And, you know, where where are these, where are our things? And she then told me that she had been unable to afford our storage unit. Mm-hmm. And so everything had been auctioned off oh. or, or <laughs> thrown away. Um, and so... That, again, was a very striking moment in which um I had to, once I got through the emotional part of it, had to just say, this is an example of why I have to succeed. And when it comes to college, it's just the Lord's going to make a way if right. this is what it's supposed to be. And I'm going to do my part, too, and apply for every scholarship. And yeah. so I would go... I think by this time we had the Internet, Um, I would go online and just apply for any sort of scholarship. And oftentimes there are, uh, I mean, you can be right-handed and apply for one. You can be left-handed, and that's a special scholarship somewhere. There's a Target scholarship. There's a this, a that. and so. And I would just be very active in applying for all of them because I didn't want my family to be burdened by my college expenses, and I knew that I didn't really have that support. Um, so that was how college was financed. Um,
1: where did the, uh, the, the, um, uh, medical service core piece come into it? The, oh yeah. The so whole NHS mean thing. the nightmare.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like my <laughs> biggest professional regret. <laughs> well, um. <laughs> Except for they pay for school. Yeah, they pay for school. So, uh, yeah, yeah, so. That it's good that you asked that. So there's something called the National Health Service Corps. So I, I imagine this is similar to like Teachers of America or Peace Corps, Peace Corps yeah. where in exchange for having medical school paid for, um, you get a monthly stipend, and you, um, well, in exchange for for the financial um, support, support, you, I owed four years of um, service to an underserved community. And for me, it was like, this is a win-win situation. I get to serve in the community from which I came. Yeah. Um, I I don't have to pay for medical school, which, you know, the average debt for medical school students when I was in med school, I believe it was about 350000 right. And so, wow, you mean if I sign up for to do what I'm going to do anyway, which is serve my community? Um, You'll pay me to do it and I end up debt free. So I, I signed up for that and <laughs> and that paid for medical school. Yeah. And and where uh, college is concerned, I also financed it by just when I came home during the summer, it was five jobs that I worked. Yeah. You know, I was doing hair, I was working for the sparks, I was babysitting, I uh, I don't even remember. So all the you sold Cutco it.
1: knives? Oh yeah,
0: you're right. I sold Cutco. Uh, I think there was one other. Oh, I was doing like telemarketing. Um, and then when I returned to campus, I was braiding hair to make extra right. money. Um, and I, I, think the, so I'm going to put the NHSC on blast. Let's do that. Let's do that.
1: We can do that. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Let's do that in the professional piece. Yeah. But what, what did you want to say about them um, initially? About what? NHSC.
0: Oh no, just that. You know, I think they they really go to schools like like Xavier mm. uh, because of we tend to be uh, like they target we, those schools, right? Where there's just a high population of minorities because yeah. you know likely we will serve the communities that Hmm. we came from, but they just don't tell you all of the.
1: Yeah. And we'll get into a little foreshadowing or what do you call it? A little suspense. We'll let you know (laughs) how all that turned out when we get to a professional career. But I want to hear about um, medical school. So now you've graduated from Xavier. You decided to be a DO because of the reasons you mentioned before in terms of treating the whole person and your desire to bring that back to the community. And now you're at Western back in Pomona, which is near LA. Um, so you 're back near home
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and you're in medical school overall and and <clears throat> I imagine you 're back to this experience where you 're not the majority anymore
0: mm-hmm.
1: um What in general was medical school like just as a just from an educational academic perspective how How was that for you?
0: It was rigorous it 's seventeen hours a day, most days studying. Mm. It was missing most birthdays and baby showers and family events. Uh, with the understanding that that this sacrifice is temporary, um, but I have to learn. You know, God created such intricacy in in our bodies that med school is just such a short period of time to learn all that there is to know about the body. Um, And so there's a lot of information just packed into... Four years. Right. And so the first two years are the book study uh, and the second, the latter two years were um, actual clinical years in which okay. you're on the hospital floors and or in the clinics. Um, now, that has changed um, the, the design and, and setup of, of the four years of medical school, I think, has, has shifted now. Do you know what it is which, now? In general, I think the more progressive schools, they start your clinical experience very early, okay. Yeah, and so it's not just sitting in the in the classroom for hours. Um, as well as now, there's the internet. There's a lot of online things, independent studies. I've seen um, a lot of as as a design uh, in med school. So, but while I was there, is the traditional you sit in class all day, every day for hours, um, and then you go home and study.
1: Now, so you're in class. You're not in class for seventeen hours, but. How long is class on a typical day?
0: Uh, I think it was about eight hours, eight or nine hours. And then you spend
1: an equal amount of time outside of class studying.
0: I did. I had to. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was very difficult for me. I I don't memorize things like I'm not a memorizer. I think um, I've that element of education for me has grown like that trait of being able to just memorize rote facts and et cetera. But. Um, traditionally I'm more of a, I need to comprehensively understand the principles. Yeah. Uh, and so, but a lot of medical school was memorization based. Well,
1: but the, so, to remember it, the a better way for the record to learn the stuff, to remember it is to learn it as opposed right. to just memorizing it and then forgetting it a couple of days after the test is over,
0: you're exactly especially if you're right. going to be a doctor. Exactly. So to all
1: the doctors out there, yeah. learn it yeah. so you remember
0: it. Yes. And so for me, it was it was challenging. Um, a lot of my peers had done other things prior to med school, whether it had been a post-baccalaureate program. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Well, so
1: so done other things in order to prepare for medical school,
0: to prepare for medical school or some had been in other careers before okay. coming or you what's know. a post-baccalaureate? Yeah. So a post-baccalaureate program is. Uh, a program that prepares you for med school. So sometimes if people do not get into medical school upon an initial attempt, then they'll go to a post-bac program, which may be two years of essentially like mock medical school. So right. they, they're, they're trained on the test and the volume of information, etc. So there are a number of people who had done that. Um, but then there were also people like myself who just went straight through. Um, but for myself, not having had that sort of extra prep, I think it was a bit more challenging where, uh, I mean, compared to my, my good friends who I spent most of my time with and studied with. Um, and, uh, but then it made me very thankful for having gone to Chadwick because again, I was used to staying up and studying at Chadwick that started in sixth grade. I would go to bed at like one or two in the morning in the sixth grade because of just studying um, because I had come from the public school where I never had a book report to entering into the super prep uh, elementary school. And it just it required a lot of work for me to get on the level of my peers. And so medical school was similar.
1: Yeah. And so in terms of school, what, what do you think are some traits, whether it's Xavier or at medical school at Western? What are some traits that made you successful that you think if you were talking to, because you've mentored a number of students who either have gone to medical school, been through medical school, young doctors. What are some things you would tell someone who wants to be a successful medical school student or preparing to go to medical school? What traits mm-hmm. should they have? What skills do they need to develop?
0: Yeah, well, number one, <clears throat> I think my faith was very important. And just the truth of God's word mm-hmm. and knowing that I did not have to be anxious for anything or knowing that when I reflected upon my life and all of the things that happened to me, that it wasn't just based off of my own merit or skill or intellect that got me there. But there were several like identifiable points in my life where I know that it was God who carried us through. Hmm. And so when it came to the medical school challenges, I knew that, he was still present with me. And so I could get through it. And so that really was essential. Um, Number two, um, having mentorship is very important. Yeah. I think it's the key to success. Having someone who you can sort of run things by or just advise you on how to proceed or support you through, through the angst or the struggles or even successes. I think that's really key. Um, I think, uh studying like aim to do well yeah you know you have to strive not to be average but to do your best even with classes that for me may not have counted where it related to an actual grade it's like i want to do well yeah um and so so
1: so and that one, you're saying the skill of studying knowing how to study well is important
0: Uh, Knowing how to study well. Yes. And also having the fervor to just put your all into everything that you do. And I think that's one thing that playing sports helps with.
1: Right. Um, It uh, It just gives you like that intensity, that push, that drive to make it through.
0: Yeah. 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 And it's a, a tangible thing. Like when you feel something in your body, I think it mentally strengthens you. And so. Um, and
1: a certain awesome. level of discipline I imagine Like, right. you have to know that it sounds like if I'm not mistaken too you have to have like a long term view because what I hear a lot then what you said is you you started at 7 mm-hmm. thinking uh, and I don't know how much you knew at the time and when you knew how much you had to do but it was going to be 7 to graduate in high school 4 years of college, 4 years of medical school then residency mm-hmm. before you would actually be a doctor right. Um. And so I imagine some amount of long term, long range planning and thinking had to be a part of it, too.
0: It did have to be uh, a part of the consideration, just like this is we're in it for the long haul. At the same time, we're going to take today's troubles and focus on those. Right. Like it's one step at a time. Yeah. And then I think this is something I did not really utilize much of, but I would recommend is tutoring mm. when you need help. Ask for it. Yeah. Or if there are ways to learn more than you, you already know or maybe approach a problem differently, seek out that sort of assistance. I think I kind of had an element of pride at some point, like, oh, no, tutoring is only for dummies. Uh, excuse me. It just makes you do well. The, my friend who just aced everything all the time, she would go to tutoring. Yeah. Um, and it just simply provided that extra support.
1: I um have a friend named Everett, who <laughs> smart, sharp young guy, gonna be highly successful, um in the future as long as the Lord gives him life. Already is. I learned the same thing from him. This guy, you know, went to grad school, had tutors for that, went to you know did his graduate program for business school, tutors for his you know the GMAT. Mm-hmm. I, I was the same way. I was like, man, this is really cool. I knew about going to the instructors, which is a part of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But there's also if there are smarter people than you who can teach you how to do better, pay for it if you have to. Bar it if you have to. Find it because you need to to get through these classes. That's I think that's a big cheat code that people don't talk about.
0: Right. I agree. I agree.
1: So those are a lot of skills. I mean, I think yeah. that's good. I think those things will help you make it through. Um, in mm-hmm. medical school, though, you had a variety of experiences. Mm-hmm. I, um, I wonder if you could speak about, like, because part of this is to help people understand when I'm in medical school, okay, it's going to be 17 hours of studying for a couple of years or some portion of it, depending on what your school is set up like. But then there's the piece that you do, the practical part of learning what it's like to be a doctor in, the, in a, like, a practice medical setting. Mm-hmm. What is that like, like? Because I, I I seen some of the stuff, the pictures, those nasty pictures. So we met when you were, I think, second or third year medical student, mm-hmm. um, and I just saw some of those nasty pictures, man, and <laughs> patients and you know, gross things that you cut apart or saw in the hospital. That's how I can perceive it. But what's it like the medical part of being a medical student and preparing to be a doctor?
0: It's absolutely invigorating.
1: Good. Why? Like how?
0: it's just. It's just so exciting uh, to work in or to, to do the work that you feel as though you were created to do mm. and that you love. Um, and then getting out of the old rank classroom <laughs> with the boring or challenging, just dry hours of study. But now we get to apply what we learned yeah. and then actually impact lives. Um, so it was very exciting. Um, get, And so the road, what, what it looks like in practicality is just, uh, like we do about every month we're on a different, what's called rotation. And so, uh, in med school, you haven't yet, at least at the beginning, selected what specialty, um, you want to enter. Yeah. Um, for me, I had decided at seven, I want to be an OBGYN, but by the end of med school, that had kind of become modified. So, um, So every month during the third and fourth year, we were on a different, again, rotation. So it could be psychiatry one month, the next month pediatrics, the next month surgery. My first uh, rotation was actually general surgery, which Mm. tends to be the hardest, (laughs) most demanding. Hardest why? why. Because you are standing for long hours. Uh, The culture within surgery is very military-like. in that the personality can be a bit strong. Um, You know, the stereotype is, is pretty arrogant. I didn't have issues. Um, I loved the surgery rotation, but it can be challenging just because it's grueling. Long hours. You have cases that are long, if you're even invited into
2: um,
0: the operating room, because as a med student, you are at the bottom of the totem pole. Mm. Um, So
1: they may not even let you come in to see a surgery
2: or whatever. uh,
0: Yeah, or if you're in there, you're not really contributing much. Um, You may be holding a retractor, which the retractor is... Is uh, an instrument used in the operating room to sort of pull a person's tissues back so that the surgeon is able to see what what it is that they're operating on. Right, um, and, and so you're just that's holding that
1: for hours, yeah, just
0: holding it or you know suctioning blood out or but you can learn during those times. The, right. the point is, it's you're you're pretty.
1: You're low on a total. Yeah,
0: part. you are, and so also you can get yelled at by everyone including okay. the nurses the techs etc and in long hours for me it was exciting um i didn't had no idea about what i was doing um <laughs> like i i was just you know um dunce but uh, i don't know about but, dunce i think yeah. what you're
1: saying is you didn't know enough to be to feel shamed you were just there to yeah. learn and having yeah. fun
0: and I always have thought, like, I'm the most important person. Not most important on the team, but, like, my job is important. Right. And so I've always done, like, the best I could do. And looking back as I became, like, my seniority grew, it's like, whoa, I probably was a good med student, like, a very helpful one. Right. Um, because. I never knew I was just med student. Be, you were but, a helpful
1: like, med student because you weren't, and I saw this somewhere I think I just read it on a Tim Ferriss blog where he said this quote about being successful in your career. I think it's like don't use your current position as a stepping stone to something else,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but just to do excellent at wherever you are and let the opportunities come. Yeah. And it sounds like you were um you were doing that. You were like, I'm gonna hold this retractor, I'm gonna hold this skin back and yeah. suction this blood like no one's ever <laughs> suctioned blood before.
0: Yeah, it's so funny. Like I never knew you know how a base the, the level of a med student is. I just thought, you know, this is my job. I got to do it well. And so um, I was lucky enough during my rotation to be paired with a surgeon who actually didn't have much help. He was a burn surgeon. Burn surgeries are pretty excruciating mm-hmm. from a physical stamina standpoint. Um, and, you know, that's not to mention the emotional side of it. But, um, generally in surgeries, so there's the attending surgeon, that's the doctor in in charge. And this is just the standard, so surgery, not surgery. There's an attending doctor who's in charge, and then there are residents under uh, the attending. And so there's like a first-year resident, second year, third year, and obviously the seniority increases your level of importance and responsibility. But generally... Uh, In surgeries, everyone else has priority as far as involvement in the case than you do. But I was paired with the surgeon who really didn't have residents who, I guess, were available. We were at a very busy hospital. So the point is, I was like the first assist, first assistant uh, in each of the cases. And so I really got my hands wet during that first med school uh, rotation. And it was just he and I for hours on end. Uh, in those surgeries.
1: So out of the, you did surgery, uh, pediatrics, what are some other examples of rotations that you might do?
0: Yeah, family medicine, uh, ear, nose, and throat. Um, You can do obstetrics, gynecology, you can do dermatology, dermatology, hematology, ophthalmology, just all of the specialties. I mean, there are a a certain number of core rotations that you'll have and then there are what what's called um, elective Yeah, kind of like any
1: subject. You have like the yeah. ones that you have to know to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of start to pick your track. Is that what mm-hmm. the electives are based around?
0: Exactly. How mm-hmm. many
1: rotations um, about mm-hmm. are there over the two-year period?
0: Hmm. So I do have lapses of memory. Uh, <laughs> I think it's like, so it's about every month for yeah. two years. Okay. So, so to I call think it we had at least 20. Okay, yeah. so out
1: of those twenty, maybe not exact number, but around how many of those are elective?
0: So that's contingent upon the school that you go to in the okay. program. So for us, I think maybe about mm, a fifth of them were elective. Okay, yeah. well
1: that's cool. So a lot of it you you do core stuff, and then you have a percentage that you get to start to pick. Hey, this mm-hmm. is where I'm going to focus. Um, where did you end up? You said you wanted to start off as an OBGYN, but then mm-hmm. later it kind of changed. Where and how did your focus change?
0: Yeah, so um, I had mentors, you know, for, who were obstetricians, or excuse me, obst. Obstetrician gynecologist um, the first mentor was actually um, a fellow Chadwick classmates mother mm. um, who I'm still in contact with today but during high school she p- allowed me to spend a couple of weeks with her in her office and she was an OBgyn very well respected in Los Angeles uh, dr. Gail Jackson and and so I I, I really was exposed to the life of an OB-GYN. Well, right. certain elements of it. but um, And so it became apparent during that rotation. I was around her and then several other ob that at a certain point, many ob sort of let go of the obstetrics part of it. So they let go of the delivering babies. Okay. So, Obstetrician is a, a physician of like pregnant women. Gynecologist is like women's health, so or the female physician, yeah. And so, um, or a physician of women, um, women's health. So, um, so they many. It, it became apparent that oftentimes, because of the rigors of the life of an obstetrician, which means you know babies come at any time. There's a high liability. People will sue you if their baby comes out with five fingers rather than four. And it's just—it's very intense. It's an intense field because you—you sure. you know, there's you don't want injury to the mom or baby, and situations can change very quickly. Um, and then just—it's hard on the lifestyle because of the unpredictability. And so, after a certain amount of time, I noticed that many many OBGYNs were leaving obstetrics and floating over just purely to the gyne side. And for me, the interesting and alluring part of, of being an obstetrician was, gynecologist was really just the obstetrics. So in med school, uh, during my final year, I was on a rotation for family medicine, and it was at a hospital downtown California hospital was USC's residency program and there the family medicine physicians did every element of family medicine and for those who are not uh, familiar with family medicine we're just general physicians right. we can take care of of all ailments we we're taught about m- many of diseases i mean we're just Essentially, like generalists, yeah. Um, but we treat every phase of life from birth until death, um, and so this includes practicing obstetrics and delivering babies, and performing surgeries, and working in the emergency room, and right. working in the office in the clinic. And so, um, I was just astounded by the the scope of practice that a family medicine physician can do. And during this rotation, I saw that the family medicine physicians were the ones performing the cesarean sections, delivering babies and, um, and then taking care of mom and baby rather than just focusing on mom. And so for me, this was, was very almost liberating because I'm not someone who likes to be, limited. Yeah. And again I had noticed that some of my mentors along the way who were OBGYNs um were, were tired of the OB part. Um, and and that that's something I saw on multiple rotations. Uh, and so I, I knew that I would probably be subject to that at some yeah. point in my career, maybe, or even if not, it's good to be trained in something else. And so it was at that point during that rotation that I decided I want to do family medicine with obstetrics. Right. Um, because if I get tired of one element, I'm trained in a lot of other areas. Um, and so that's where that began.
1: So whenever you were in medical school, you did the, the book part and then the rotation part. Um, can you talk about setting aside just the actual medical school experience? What are some of the kinds of discrimination or bias or things like that that you feel like you dealt with as a, a medical student?
0: Well, I have the trifecta of I am a woman, I am African American, and also I'm young.
2: Yeah. And you look Considerably, young.
0: Considerably. Yeah, and that's the that's the main thing. I tend to look young. And while black don't I, crack <laughs> I'd like to believe that at this point in my life I'm beginning to look older. I feel as though maybe I'm like You don't. Illusion, disillusion, because on a daily basis now, I have more people telling me how young I look and more people mistaking me for a teenager than ever before. So I don't quite understand it. You're
1: just so young, you long-looking, vivacious, fountain (laughs) of youth, beautiful woman.
0: Oh, well, thank you. But it affected
1: you in medical school.
0: Big time, because just the, again, the... Those three elements of looking young, and then maybe four, because my, my small stature,
2: yeah. I think,
0: adds to it. People are not intimidated by me. Right. Um, on the contrary, people tend to feel very immediately comfortable with me. Um, and, and so that oftentimes just, there, there are not barriers that people feel right. with me. Yeah. They automatically, there's a sense of familiarity, which, which can lead to disrespect very easily. And so because I was a young woman, and then um, African American woman in med school, I had bad experiences with um, my classmates. Uh, You know, the men, a couple of them were very disrespectful. Um, So for instance, there were common, commonly comments about, you know, my anatomy yeah, uh, and um, you know, jokes like or cat people trying, try yeah, catcalling or maybe even um, trying to touch me sometimes, um, which was very humiliating. Our medical school class was pretty large. I think we started off with 228 students. Um, by the end, there was less than that because medical school is difficult. But there were five of us of color. Five women, five, five black All women. women. Oh, five. All women. Okay, we five had, black
1: people, all women.
0: We had no black males in our class. Wow. And I like to say, and take it as you may, we kind of had three African-American. Okay. okay. Now, that was now <laughs> uh, five.
1: Yeah. This, they may listen to this, so you know, <laughs> how you will put that?
0: Yeah. So, because part of the African-American experience comes okay. from how <laughs> people identify you. Okay. And so if, if if it's difficult to recognize or identify that you're black, yeah. because you may be black, but have you look like you're white or something else, yeah. then you're not going to get treated as though you're black.
1: You know, so there's this thing, um, you may have heard about it when you were in New Orleans, I um, knew someone from there in the past, and mm-hmm. they called it Passant Blanc that you mm-hmm. could pass for being white. Right. And it was a it was a good thing to do that because they had a right. whole brown paper test, brown paper yeah. bag test. Xavier to used to club.
0: utilize that.
1: Oh, really? How?
0: Huh? For admission.
1: Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So the, the, so to get into Xavier, you have to be lighter than a brown paper bag.
0: Yeah. So so it's been told. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And okay. we would wonder why there are so many attractive people. And it wasn't just skin color. I mean, by the time I was there, there's just a lot of people who are super attractive. The... the the speculation was that they still sort of classify wow. entrance. Or, yeah. Wow.
1: Well, I can see why you made it in Cause you find Well,
0: out. I don't know about that, but, but
1: you're saying now at medical school, there was this thing where different people got, you noticed you got treated differently and some others did because of how, how easy it was to tell that they were actually black people.
0: Right. So well, one of them was mixed. Yeah. One of the five of us was mixed. Um, I think for black people, it's easier for us to recognize if someone's mixed than white people. Right. That's been my experience. Oftentimes, like I've had white people say, oh, well, Beyonce is mixed because she's light skinned. She can't be black. But we know as African-Americans, like, well, actually, no, we come in. There's a diaspora. There's a diversity, there's yeah. diversity here. Right. And we all look different. So um, but one of my classmates, she looked like she was white. So um, she she blended right in. Uh, and then there was another classmate who was from Ethiopia, so culturally she did not really fit in um so much um with with um so there's my friend Monique and my friend Michelle now we' are like American black, yeah. just black um and so um as our, our other friend would maybe hang out with some of the other cultures who were from that region of the world, we didn't. And so.
1: Um, yeah. Me one, being from from a, an African country, there is sometimes too even that division between black Americans and people who are black from other countries. Yeah. Yeah,
0: for sure. And so what that looked like for us, uh, us being the three uh, black Americans, <laughs> um, was, for instance, one of my classmates. She had a question about how the eye muscles worked. Yeah. They're called extraocular muscles. Uh, after class, we would all have little study groups generally everyone's just studying studying studying. And so she went in and asked a group of guys who who we counted are yeah as our friends, we consider them to be our friends. She went in and asked them a question about one of the extraocular muscles. And they very confidently said we'll answer your question when you put and, and put a five dollar bill on the table and said we'll a- answer your question when you dance like there's a pole in the room mm. and this was not anything that any of the other students experienced. yeah um additionally uh in class one day i'd have a, another classmate of mine this is a a, phys- a, a female um who's She happened to be Asian, but she asked me, like, hey, Chantal, you know, what do you think about Puff Daddy and Beyonce? And I said, you know what? I could care less about Puff Daddy and Beyonce. Like, my world doesn't just exist uh, or revolve around media and pop culture. Right. I am here in medical school right now working very hard, and that's what's important to me, Um and she said, you know what, because we look at you guys like, what are you doing here? Go get in a music video.
2: Mm.
0: And so because she was being genuine and, and I really didn't feel like she had like made she was, that It was comment, a
1: serious comment that she was thinking?
0: Yeah, she, she was pretty serious, just ignorant. Oh, boy. Um, but because she was genuine and and I didn't feel as though she was saying these things to insult me although she may have I I didn't go off I didn't flip on the other Chantel that people (laughs) may not know about but I just told her very um, candidly like hey we don't just I alluded to it earlier. Black people just don't sit on stoops and sing all day, sing and dance. (laughs) Like, to get into this seat next to you, I probably had to work five times harder. Like, you don't understand my story. This is serious business here. I'm a professional like you are. It's not about Jay-Z and Beyonce. Those are just icons that people who don't look like us have have uh, really put a lot of emphasis on, but we're more than int- entertainers. You know, a lot of us within the professional realm work hard, and that is our cultural um,
1: Identity,
0: identity. It's just not publicized, and yeah. so I had that conversation with her. But I was baffled at that commentary. Right. I was, I appreciated her being genuine, but I'm sure she wasn't the only person in the class who held that sort yeah. of opinion when it came time um, to do like group projects, right? Where you have to choose within a class session, like, okay, get with students or get with your classmates to try to figure out this sort of question or problem. Uh, Oftentimes, people were not gravitating to me
2: yeah,
0: (laughs) Uh, because, you know, the assumption is I don't know anything. I'm not smart. Probably affirmative action that got me in here, which Mm. was not the case. Um, I know I spoke with the dean because I did have leadership positions while in medical school, and, and so... I, I became well acquainted with the dean of the school. <clears throat> and we happened to be at a dinner, and he just told me, yeah, if you, all you need to do to get into medical school if you're a black male is just, is um, essentially all you need to do is apply to medical school if you're a black male to get in.
1: And get a decent score maybe on the MCAT. Yeah, but
0: I feel like he may have, yeah, said something s- silly and ridiculous like that. And I said, do you know how much How hard it is for the average black male to even arrive to the point at which he can apply to medical school. Like, it's not just about being a black, just being black, you'll get in because, you know, then the there's such a a pile of of, open spots uh, of not just open spots, but like of gratuity or or. of philanthropy and generosity generosity, that all we want is to get you guys in it's not based on merit you just need to be black and so that would routinely happen in med school just comments like that and again these are from everyone from the dean of the med school to my fellow classmate um so med school was pretty interesting from that standpoint. But again, that's what made Xavier's experience even more yeah. fulfilling because I knew I'd return back to just the Lollapalooza is what you say. Yeah, in the real world. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you finished and persevered through not just the classes, not just the rotations, but also some of these um, adjustments you had to make academically and culturally to medical school. And ended up graduating from medical school, um, and and then becoming a doctor. Uh, what w- what did that feel like to to like finally graduate and like I'm done, I'm here, I'm I'm like official now.
0: I think surreal, likely surreal, and just I, I was very relieved because this had been a lifelong goal for me. And, you know, there's an overwhelming sense of achievement in having accomplished that goal that started out like over half of my life previously to right. actually walking across the stage. And so um, also, you know, it was, it was a rough journey in that there were times where I didn't think that I would make it because it was difficult. And so to have actually succeeded was was very exciting, and just the thought of, okay, now I get to start what it is that, that I've aimed to do for so long was exciting. Like, no more of the book stuff, like, let's get to the real world. Um, and then to just see the, um, the appreciation and fulfillment that it gave both of my parents, along with my grandparents and the aunts and the uncles, um, was, was so rewarding for me. Yeah. And you were there, too. I was there. And then, you yeah. were proud. <laughs> I was very proud. <laughs> and supportive. And, and Asia was there, yeah. a good friend. I and blowing an air horn
1: in your graduation. Yeah. And you had worked very hard to do that, and now it was time to go into residency. So every doctor, if I'm not mistaken, after they're right. done with medical school, mm-hmm. goes into residency. What's residency? And, um, and and what residency program did you choose?
0: So residency, as the name uh, in, explicitly shows, is like a resident. Like literally it used to mean that you lived in the hospital. You were a resident of the hospital. and You didn't leave. Now the wow. rules have changed, um, whereas we, when I was in residency, we could easily do 30 or more hour-long shifts. Uh, now they've shaved that down a bit, um, but... Residency looked like you're working around the clock. Um, I, I loved I, I loved the work of residency. Yeah. There are obviously some, you know, you're, you're living with other people. And so there are, as as is true with any family, there are a lot of different personal or personality things that you may have to work through. But I actually really love the experience of um, being in the hospital and seeing patients and getting to know the staff. Um I'm someone who believes that everyone is an essential part of the team. So whether it be the janitor or the cook in the cafeteria or um, the maintenance person or the president of the hospital, I tried to get to know everyone and I made a lot of friends. And so it was a rich experience. And the the people who oftentimes motivated me the most when I was exhausted um, were like the the cook who used to make the omelets he made some good or, omelets yeah great omelets or the the janitor who would say you know keep going i know you had a hard day or yeah. Um, like the CNA, which is like the bottom of the totem pole for nurses. You know, they're the ones who do all of the work that's difficult, cleaning diapers and feeding patients. Um, the CNAs do that, and oftentimes they were the most encouraging to me. Or when I had a difficult case because we, our residency program um, we we were the only house residents of the of the program. So there are hospitals that have a lot of different residents. Sometimes, so different specialty programs within a hospital. So you may have a surgery residency and you may have a family medicine residency, pediatric residency, all in the same hospital. Okay. Our hospital just had a family medicine residency, but because we were in the part of downtown LA that was very needy with a heavy population of indigent patients, as well as just a lot of deliveries of babies. I mean, we would deliver in the hallway sometime. Mm. Um, other residency programs would send their residents to our hospital to learn
1: to get a lot of experience, right? And, and your program, by the way, was the USC residency program, right?
0: USC Family Medicine mm-hmm.
1: at California Hospital, correct? So you finally made it to become an Trojan, which is yeah. awesome. Woo Fight on! <laughs> and uh, and then you did residency. So your program is where they would send. All kinds of people because they knew they get like a really rich experience seeing what they saw downtown.
0: For sure, and we had a lot of traumas, um, like you it's guys a trauma hospital, a lot of gunshot wounds, okay. a lot of the stabbings, just everything. And so,
1: if someone gets basically for the for a period of time we were there, someone got shot pretty much in yeah. South Central up mm-hmm. to like Burbank or almost Pasadena. Well, they would basically come down the California Hospital.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so, um. You know, on some of my difficult days, um, like, for instance, a resident, one of the visiting residents, because she's an OBGYN resident, right, and I'm family medicine, There, within the medical community, there's, like, a hierarchy, and right? Like and bloods the, and cribs. Right? Yeah. And the specialists oftentimes um, have a, a higher opinion of, of specialists rather than physicians like myself, who are considered primary care physicians okay. in family medicine. So. In any case, I was in a case going to deliver a baby and a resident OBGYN resident just came right in and sort of bumped me out of the way and delivered the baby. And um, and because I was friends with the nursing staff on certain days, like in this particular day, one of the nurses said, you know, Dr. Bauman, you cannot allow that to happen do you you know, I am very disappointed in your performance and you didn't, You need to let people know that you need you mean business and you need to handle your cases like this and you need to speak to the residents like like that and, and let them, you have to demand your respect. Right. But I was just so grateful for those sorts of experiences and that it was, I, I can learn from anyone and right. that I had a community of people who were constantly looking out for me and encouraging me. So did you ever bump her um, back? Uh, she got her, uh, there was a little retribution there. She never did that again. I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never say that. And her her senior residents recruited me to um, actually join their program in okay. residency because they were quite impressed at my skills at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, so in terms of residency, like that's one story in terms of you needing to stand up for yourself. In terms of the experience of being a doctor and learning
2: mm-hmm. a
1: part of being a family medicine doctor, what's an experience that stands out to you um that you recall that was like that's formative that that would help kind of elucidate what a being a resident in a family medicine program was like at California Hospital?
0: Yeah, there are a lot. So, we'll just go with an easy <laughs> an easy one which is delivering a baby, which was like my favorite thing to do. Uh, the beauty of family medicine again is that we follow the patient sort of from beginning uh, of the pregnancy to the end, and we also become their their children's pediatrician. So there was one patient who I had become quite close with uh, during during her care, and and I began taking care of her at the beginning of her pregnancy, and everything went so smoothly during pregnancy, and then even her delivery was going really smoothly. Uh, until the heart rate started to drop in the baby mm. and this was not her first baby. So oftentimes the second delivery can be a bit smoother than the first, not always. But, um, I happened to be working with again, another mentor of mine and the, the mentor was my attending physician or the physician in charge of me. She actually delivered our baby, nice. our, our Timothy, um, And so just within seconds, everything changed and the baby was not doing well. And uh, the mom was inefficiently pushing. Uh, And uh, so we did nearly every maneuver. We got baby out and and baby he he wasn't doing well initially, but we were able to resuscitate him and everything turned out fine.
1: So he wasn't breathing when he came out.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) And um, that must have been pretty scary it was extremely scary and for me having established this, such a long relationship with the patient like you begin to connect beyond just like i'm doing my job yeah. i think with physicians part of the not necessarily burden but i'm not sure of how to 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 phrase it differently but our responsibility is to some times disconnect from our humanity in order yeah. to get the job done yeah. so we disconnect personally and emotionally from what we're doing but then it affects us and there are several moments in, you know, when I have patients die or the traumatic experiences where I'd say I have to cry for just five minutes and then I need to suck it up and keep working. In this case there was a great outcome but I was so happy to be next to um, a woman who I, I valued very much, that uh, Dr. Nichols uh, because she we were able to get through so many difficult cases together, um, mm. so that was a very memorable one. I remember delivering another baby of a, a a young lady who was intoxicated, or you know, she was inebriated on some some cocktail of drugs. Who didn't think she was pregnant, but she was in active labor, and we were actively delivering her baby. Wow. Uh, and so, throughout the delivery. You know, she's yelling at me, uh, punching me, telling me not to touch her. Meanwhile, the baby's coming out and she's saying she's not pregnant. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, and she would not let me do a vaginal exam, did not want me to have my hands down there. But guess what? Your body will assume the position eventually. And baby came out. But the baby, because the family did not want to assume uh, the care of the child, stayed in our nursery for months. Wow! And so during my long days on call or just long shifts, if ever there was downtime, I would go to the nursery and hold the babies, that baby included. And, And that again, like instilled within me or fortified within me, this desire to expand our family. Yeah. 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 And adopt.
1: a lot of kids. Yeah.
0: So we may eventually have 11 kids. You never know. Very, very (laughs)
1: eventually. And they'll all come at 17 and leave at 18. (laughs) All the adopted kids. Yeah. So the, 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 the thing I wanted to understand when you mentioned that is how do you deal with the emotional part as a doctor? I think you said there's a part of you that has to disconnect. Um, how, how much do you, you know, and, and mm-hmm. kind of how has that changed over your career?
0: Yeah, I think you'd be able to answer that. Yeah. You've been right here watching me through it. I mean, I think it's been a challenge more so at certain times in my life than others. Uh, during residency, I didn't really c- connect so much with the emotions of patient care. Um, I, don't, I, I don't feel like... It was as much of a weight as it became when I started practicing on my own. And right. all of the responsibility is on me. As a resident, I, you think you're in control of everything and everything's up to you. But you always, again, have your attending physician. And that's whose license and reputation right. is on the line. As so a medical like student, boss, you have the, no responsibility.
1: The doctor's your boss. They're in charge. Yeah. They're always your backstop. They're the ultimate responsible person. Mm-hmm. So you have them to kind of fall back on. Right. But then when you start practicing, it's all on you.
0: Exactly and so during residency I would just connect momentarily by just you know uh, by crying sometimes by praying, reading the Bible, talking to you about it. Um, I think another very hard time was when I had my uh, emergency room rotation. Yeah. I mean I had a couple of them, but this one in the again in Los Angeles at USC, one day, we just got flooded with a lot of different traumas, namely the, the one that impacted me the most was when we had two gunshot wound victims come in at the same time, and it turned out that one was a, one was a father and stepdaughter, and the father had, for whatever reason we'll never know, shot his stepdaughter, who was mm. a teenager. And as physicians, we're responsible for the care and lives of both. Right. Without judgment. Yeah. And...
1: Which one did you have?
0: I had the father. Oh, man. <laughs> and it was just really devastating for me because the entire time I'm like, why not just take it out on yourself? Yeah. Um, and so... You know, but we cracked open his chest and I'm holding his heart in my hand and mm. doing what's called manual CPR, which means not through the chest, like on top of the chest, but actually in the chest, hand, heart in my hand. And I'm feeling it beat and eventually stop beating, but I'm trying my best to keep him alive. Um, and, and and that was a hard day for me. But there were experiences, many like that, um, where it's like, I just need to just withdraw a little yeah. bit. Like I need time away because this is heavy.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, as a medical student, we had another very memorable experience where a mom, I was working more in a rural area um, near Santa Barbara, Marion County, maybe, um, or excuse me, Santa Maria, where at about two in the morning, a, a husband and wife come in and they have a baby wrapped in a blanket and they don't speak English because it's some Indian dialect like, american indian dialect that the staff did not speak right and and they had just the the husband and wife bypassed the security guards just to come in the emergency room and the security guards trying to tell us that they they're saying something's wrong with the baby they laid that baby who was 30 days old on the on the stretcher and it's apparent that the baby is dead yeah um but we work on the baby anyway um and we try our best and uh, parents are right there, and Mom is hovering over the the stretcher, just like, "Why, why?" And you know, just grieving as we're trying CPR and trying a, a number of different things to resuscitate this baby who, from the moment I saw, I knew, was you know lifeless without hope. Um, and then having to go and explain to them in yeah. terms that they can understand, like, no, the baby was not just having trouble, but this baby is, is dead. Mm. Um, it was really hard because you don't cry in front of the patients yeah. or while you're explaining things. And seeing the, the grief specifically for parents who have lost their child yeah. is, is very difficult. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, you, I think. Y- you, you have to be a strong person to be a doctor and, and it's good for people to know that who want to get into that profession. Um, and and then y- as a professional, you started serving this National Health Service Corps commitment. Um, it, it, you, you had the opportunity now then to work in some of those inner city underserved community mm-hmm. clinics as part of your National Health Service Corps commitment to pay back the time for this schooling um why don't you give like the you know because it's a it's a it's a difficult story to tell and it's a lot of drama that happened during it but for this for the sake of kind of giving a sketch of it what was it like working in those communities kind of if you could the good the bad the ugly
0: yeah so the communities themselves were just genuinely comprised of beautiful people i'd say like in general the issues that i had on a routine basis working within the low income sector at specifically at federally qualified health centers because i want to limit it to that um i generally had issues with management yeah but the patients themselves were very grateful for the care they received in for the general most part. yeah for yeah, the most part. yeah demanding yes but they tended to be the more healthier ones who go crazy the but the the they're very grateful i got more gifts than ever before working with this sort of population. I mean, it's this population who we had come to our wedding and to baby shower or who actually they still, one of them text me and Facebook me and that I've established great relationships with. Um, But they also are the sickest population of people that I've ever worked with, you know, and it makes sense, right? Because there's not access to great, uh, nutrition, there's low education, uh, meager resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in, within the healthcare too, a lot of physicians don't choose to work there because uh, there aren't many financial gains. There's not a lot of administrative support, etc. Um, but the patients themselves, I really enjoyed serving. Uh, in part because it's they're in such need of yeah. a high level of care,
1: and this was our community. Like yeah. we would see your patients at our grocery store.
0: Oh yes, and walking uh, Titus in a stroller down the street. Hey, Doctor Bowman. Whoa! Like <laughs> who knew you dude, in my, Yeah.
2: Who knew you live here? Uh, <laughs> Just
0: visiting my sister. Oh great. I, can I ever hide? <laughs> Um, and I say hide, because we have the flip side where you have patients who who want to get really intense with you um
1: because they they have some of them
0: very entitled,
1: yeah, they had needs they thought that they deserved to get certain things right and not pay for them, right, and you were working as a physician with integrity saying like, no, this thing actually costs something, and they could be violently opposed to your position,
0: yes, because we had that happen um working at an office where the staff didn't like me because I would ask them to do their work. Well, when a patient came in, got upset with me, no one let me know ahead of time that this was a, a very belligerent patient they had cursed out all of the office staff. And so they say, oh, let Dr. Bondman handle it. So then they get into my... <laughs> and, and then, you know, this lady, um, much larger than me, gets into the office and eventually, you know, the plan is you're going to need some medicine going to be Tylenol. She gets mad at me about the Tylenol and decides to physically assault me when I'm pregnant. Yeah. And there's no support. And, you know, because these clinics are very much volume driven as a way to generate income, the support I got administratively was you should have prescribed her an inappropriate medicine, a yeah. narcotic.
1: So that the the administration told you you should have given her what she did not need. Right. So she wouldn't bother you.
0: Right. So that she wouldn't then Assault me and have me in preterm labor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, or, you know, another clinic workout, somebody come in and shoot the nurse. Yeah. All right. So the, the environments are very intense. Yeah. And namely because there's lack of administrative support. Like I don't really so much blame the patients, uh, although the patients are, can be the problem because first of all, there's a lot of anger and people look to physicians to be, to be everything to them. Yeah. Oftentimes, you're my caretaker. You're my mom. You're my sister. Like they divulge everything to us. They also are so used to being, are impotent within their own communities that the healthcare venue is one in which they can be demanding or assert some type of of power and authority. Power. Yeah. And so and so. They would challenge me. I've had patients, you know, challenge me like that. Like, you need to sign this paper right now and lie on it so I can get my funds um, because I'm no longer on crack cocaine. Oh, but um, I see I did a, a blood test and it shows crack cocaine. Oh, well, no, 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 no. It's because somebody touched me with a cigarette and that's how the crack cocaine got in my blood. Well, no, that's not how it works. But then that patient is ready to in fight. my life yeah you know and so that kind of happened especially early in my career on a uh, multiple day basis yeah, per pretty week. regular basis because yeah.
1: we got married your i think at the end of your residency mm-hmm. and so i saw this stuff from basically residency through now saw mm-hmm. it up front so it was a, it was a kind of a crazy situation and the part that you said that people that that you might throw nhsc under the bus a little bit is they don't tell you that kind of stuff whenever you're applying for the the national health service corps and getting on these scholarships that you could be in situations that are potentially dangerous
0: yeah they don't tell us that there are no quality control there's very little quality control of the clinics themselves Yeah, and there's not accountability on on behalf of the clinics and
1: i think Uh, that's a for me that's a that's a level of disparate treatment in a way that's not fair when it's a government organization that's supposed to be guaranteeing this level of service that's right. providing all this care for these people that they should do their best to make sure that people are in an environment for success the doctors and the patients because what doctors going to work there are going to want to work there if if it's not safe
0: and inevitably that's what happens that's why it's hard to retain physicians because yeah. it's just such an excruciating process Um, administratively, where the staff has more control over the care that you render than you do. As a doctor. As If a patient misses their appointment at 9 a.m., at 4.30 p.m., the front desk nurse is going to say, oh, well, you had a no-show at 9, so let's add two more patients right now at 4.40 440 or 4.45, and it makes no sense, but you don't have a say-so. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it was pretty excruciating those years.
1: You also had... um a different experience in terms of uh, where you worked,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: you left that environment of the the federally qualified health centers mm-hmm. and worked more so for some commercial entities, um, one of which uh, was Heal. Mm-hmm. Um, Heal is a different type of whole different type of thing, an Uber doctor where, you know, uh, you were basically were house made house calls. Can you describe what that type of place was?
0: yeah it was it was very unique um the patients were were majority of what or the majority of the patients were from an entirely different demographic so now we're talking about rendering care to celebrities very often yeah um and the wealthiest of the wealthy residents in Los Angeles County yeah. or very highly powered and accomplished professionals as well as um, people of, of, of um, you know, normal economic status and all of that. But there is just a, a wide range of patients served. Um, And I got to treat people in their homes, which I really enjoyed. Um, It sounds cliche, but it allowed me to practice the art of medicine because I did not have handy like an x-ray machine, ultrasound or many diagnostic tools, but rather my hands and my ears and and my eyes to diagnose and to treat um, every age group. Um, And so for me, that was very rewarding um, and, and, and gratifying. Uh, having a mobile office was unique. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but seeing the use of technology within medicine was, was exciting uh, because I think medicine within this country is going to really change. And when I say medicine, just the how it's utilized. Uh, right now, the system of having to make an appointment and it be around based off of solely the, the doctor's schedule or the office schedule, I think, will be a paradigm change. Yeah. Um, and
1: you at Heal ended up like becoming the face of the company. People will call us and see you on commercials on TV or mm-hmm. some commercials on Facebook or different things like that. And, and and I think that kind of thing happened because, you know, you started to get a reputation like we saw for these patients, for the type of doctor that everybody wanted. As soon as you would, you go into a clinic with multiple doctors treat somebody's patient because another doctor couldn't see them, and they want to switch from that doctor to you. Um, that happened pretty regularly to the point that it sometimes frustrated other doctors. They were mad because patients liked you over them. And setting aside whatever they may have felt, the reality was that you got a good reputation for how well you treated patients. What do you think as a doctor? What's, what's the thing about the way you take care of patients that made patients feel so well taken care of?
0: So, I think patients really primarily want to be assured that you care about them. Yeah. You care about their needs and about the issues that they are bringing to you, number one. So what they are looking for is compassion. And one way to demonstrate compassion is to simply listen. Yeah. You know, it. it it's... It leaves me, like, ap- apoplectic sometimes hearing these stories from our friends or families about their experiences and in, in going in to see a physician and, and the physician not listening just to their story. I mean, oftentimes you can make a diagnosis just on the what's called history or story that the patient shares with you alone. Um, but that, in turn, whether it be a physician or a husband-wife couple or, you know— um, You know, friends talking when you listen, that that communicates care, yeah, and empathy and sympathy. And so, I think that's one thing that I do do, and it can be a challenge, right? Because we're limited by time, yeah. Uh, But I try my best to assure the patient that. Number one, I want to do the best job I can for them. I do not have all of the answers, but I also am very tenacious. And so I will persist in getting them the care that they need or seeking an answer for um, their their ailments or illness or what have you to the best of my ability. And people appreciate that. You know, I see patients not as just patients, but as people. And I think they appreciate that. And I care for everyone as though they were my brother, sister, uh, son, daughter, husband, friend, cousin. Uh, Everyone gets my best care. uh, No matter if you're poor or if you are the president of the United States. And, and I think that's the key. That's the key.
1: How, so this looking young, being small, black female, um, how have you dealt with that and how people have treated you in the in the workplace at now as a doctor?
0: I have adopted the philosophy of this is just the reality for me. Mm. <laughs> I cannot change my phenotype. And God has...
1: And what's phenotype for the non-geneticists uh, out
0: there? Just uh, my physical appearance, my physical makeup. Uh, you know, and God has designed me the way I am for a reason. Um, but oftentimes a patient could be ha- short of breath, okay? just have so much (laughs) difficulty breathing, they can hardly talk. And the first thing they want to say is, oh, wow, like, how, how old are you? How And I'm like, hey, honey, we can worry about that later. <laughs> I know you're impressed, but you can't breathe. Like, I want to help you out with that. But I've, I've seen some pretty, what turns out for me to be comical, things that people do just because they're so surprised. Yeah. Um, they, they really do think I'm 13. I mean, they, they say that or... Um, you know, they, they become so interested in me that they forget why they're there. And that's just <laughs> the norm. On the contrary, I've had to build a, a, a strong backbone and just a level of confidence that, yeah. you know, because the nurses oftentimes are older than me.
2: Mm hmm.
0: And with that comes a certain uh, perception that maybe because I'm young, I don't know much. Right. And so they treat me as such. Right. Uh, and so there can sometimes be an upside down model of, of authority or, um, of, of des- design yeah. than is intended. And, and so I, my job is to turn it right back upside up or <laughs> right, side, right, up. right yeah. side up Yeah. Um, to, <laughs> to get things together and, and so sometimes um I've encountered like a, an indignation that I feel mm. like some staff or management may have and um but we you get didn't through allow that.
1: them you didn't allow them to punk you.
0: Right. And because my age or you know my gender I see how they treat the male physicians right. where Um, you know, it's always doctor, 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 right? Dr. Mitchell, Dr. such and such. And then with me, it's Chantel. Mm. And so I've learned how to not feel bad about correcting that. Yeah. Um, And being a a physician or a professional, but I've had to grow in it. Yeah. I've seen you. I've seen you get super about it. Yeah. And, um, but I think ultimately it's just you know, working hard. There's a job to do, and there's been a lot of trials. Yeah, um,
1: it's okay to you know to assert your authority, you yeah. know, out there and give them, let them know.
2: Because <laughs>
1: if if not, you know, the the I think that's an obstacle that you're moving for the next person. Right. It's kind of like that woman who was on the plane who the whole meme started about you know what a black th- doctor looks like. Right. That you're part of serving to to repudiate the. The myths or the misconception that you right. a doctor doesn't look like you,
0: right? And I have a sisterhood of physicians who, uh, who are going through this with me. Yeah, you know, so it's not unique to me. But you know, my best friend, Astrid, pediatrician, who we're probably the same stature. Yeah. We argue about who's bigger, right. or who's She's heavier. <laughs> uh, but she she comes across it as well. Yeah, um,
1: you're persevering well. I, um, I wanted to ask you, too, like, you, you're outside of work. You also volunteer for a number of organizations um, in the community, including the Charles Drew um, uh, Medical Society. Um, as long as the Association of Black Women Physicians, you volunteer for the Association of Black Cardiologists. Um, why, and, and not just volunteered or participated in them, but been officers in some of these organizations on their executive staff. Why do you lead and and serve in this way in these types of organizations? And what about them is DC is valuable?
0: I think each of the organizations you mentioned is geared specifically towards improving the health of uh, African American community, as well as increasing the numbers of African American physicians within medicine. Yeah, and so um, there's a legacy uh that these organizations will leave and and I feel a responsibility to contribute to that now obviously our procreation sort of has limited the
2: the kids. Yeah.
0: The level of my my involvement, I think earlier on like med school et cetera, I, I got my hands a lot more dirty in community service. Yeah. Um, but it's just the mission, if we don't do it, who will do it? Yeah. You know, if we aren't raising money to give to medical students or to high school students who aspire to be in medicine or what have you, who will do it? Yeah. Uh, and then it's important for for kids to see faces that look like them so mm-hmm. that they can aspire to do things other than than what they think they're capable of. Right. You know, one of my mentees, his belief was that black men never survive past the age of 17. Yeah. Um, and so he really thought, well, what's the purpose of my life? I can do what I want to do. I can beat up who I want to be. I can beat up who I'd like to beat up. I can get assaulted. It doesn't matter. I'm going to end up dead or in jail anyway. So spending time with someone like that was important because he's like, wait, you're beyond 17. You're not a male, but there are there are black people who do better than what I'm used to seeing.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. That's really good. And I, I appreciate that you're doing it because that's the same heart of this show is to show that there are people other than what you expect to be involved at a level that's of high excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, one more um, personal question: In terms of you mentioned having kids and stuff a lot, um, what would you say is the the top challenge of being a mom and a doctor?
0: The guilt that's felt when I'm away from mm-hmm. the kids because the responsibilities are similar actually in both arenas. Hmm. Like our purpose is to to nurture and to love and to extend ourselves and, and sacrificially in both aspects. But when I'm at work, I'm thinking about home and taking care of my kids and being away from them and taking care of you, being away from you. Uh, And then at home, it can be a challenge, like thinking about all of the or turning off the all of the responsibilities that I know await me at work. Or did I adequately treat this patient or, you know, did I remember to do this or that? So I think that's the biggest challenge. I
1: think you've handled it well and um, takes teamwork to make the dream work. Yes. And you've been been an
0: excellent husband. Thank you. (laughs) Thank
1: you. I've been at home trying to hold down the fort for a little while. Um and now you're getting an opportunity to have more of a flexible type of uh career later on where you design the time yourself so you can spend more time with the kids, I which is so. good. Yeah, I hope so too, because I love the kids, man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh they, they, they it's definitely a challenge being a parent and, and working together is certainly important um to make it happen. Um I I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the one doctor, I think her name was Gail or something, who was mm-hmm. the O B G Y N. What other Mentors, have you had um, as a doctor?
0: Uh, so another very important person in my life uh, was Randy Simmons. Mm. Yeah. And so he was the first Los Angeles PD SWAT officer to be murdered while in the line of duty. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but I spent hours on end with him as a teenager and maybe some part of college, uh, not much, but um, just doing community service and, like, mission-based missionary work within the projects of Los Angeles. So what did that look like? We were doing Bible studies with the kids. Um, We'd have um, events where we are singing songs, praise and worship. We'd spend time praying with them, Um, you know, having fun, like, game times and sort of recreational events. But he taught me how to really just love people. Yeah. Um, and he taught me also to not fear death mm. and to love God with all yeah. of your heart. And And so he was a big mentor for yeah. me. And this yeah. is
1: a guy who 10,000 people were at his funeral in L.A. I mean, they yes, shut down I mean. L.A. People came from across the world. At so least. his life for his life he served for God was an impact internationally that's what I kind of learned from seeing them and knowing them
0: yeah exactly any
1: other mentors that you have
0: um yeah so I've had several I would say like off of the top of my head that the most poignant ones I mean I had Dr. Nichols who I uh, mentioned earlier and who went from training me as a med student to training me as a resident to then delivering our own baby. Um, And she also mentored me through some of my most difficult times um, as a professional. Right. Um, And I think she she served as a big one. Um, You have been a great mentor to me as my husband and friend, and it's such an honor to be on your show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is very fun, and and I am really... uh, grateful that i'm able to speak and be a a uh what would you glass breaker oh a glass breaker Yeah, yeah on your show yeah it means a lot so yeah and i mentioned earlier my mom yeah yeah i mean she was a big one she taught me how to how to love um she taught me how to um give sacrificially and she taught me how to um, not hold a grudge and how to put your children, like mm. to value them very highly. Um, she she taught me what it is to be um, to purely live your life and trusting that it's in God's hands. Yeah, yeah, and I not agree. your own. And she taught me how to suffer. Yeah, how to suffer long. Yeah, through relationships, um, physically. And how to suffer without complaining. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I owe so much to my mother who's no longer with us, yeah. right? Because she died two years ago. Um, but I feel so blessed to have had her as, as a mentor. Mm. Yeah. And additionally, there's my godmother, Gail, who is my mother's best friend. She's taught me so much about life and marriage and been very supportive. And lastly there's my father. Our relationship was actually redeemed and he's a wonderful man. I consider him to be one of my best friends. He's a great grandfather. I've learned so much from him in life.
1: Let's see, what are three books that you would give as a gift?
0: Yes, yeah, so as you know, I'm not really much of a recreational reader. Not of books. Uh, but yeah, you do, do a, a lot of. of books. Yeah, I read a lot of just like medicine related periodicals. Why? Um, because I feel so responsible for the care that I give and yeah. I need to stay up to date. And there's so much to learn and to know all the time. Like, I need to constantly be quizzed and just reading. Yeah. Um, one of my mentors in medicine, this is another one, a male physician, Dr. Wansky, um, his motto was you have to read an hour a day. Now, I don't really do that as far as medicine, just to to keep abreast. Um, but um, for that reason, I'm not really <laughs> much of a, like, a sort of a... Um, a reader just for pleasure. Although I plan to start, plus the kids got in the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the Bible number one for yeah. sure. That's the living water. Yeah. Okay, and and um, number two, I think the excellent wife was a, a great book for me. Not just as in teaching me how to be a wife, um, but just in general, like just a servant. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was very helpful. Well,
1: you are an excellent wife.
0: Oh, thanks.
1: (laughs) Very excellent. Yeah. Um, what do you do for fun?
0: So, uh, play with the kids uh, dress them up <laughs> um watch sports with you yeah. um i like to play sports so basketball football i mean my my hands are itching to get another ball so i could dunk on you like Uh-oh. i did last time i like i like all sports um and just hanging out really yeah. just lounging spending time um, with friends I yeah know. friends yeah and family uh, cassandra is one of my best friends yeah. but we're. <laughs>
1: yeah. i
0: like hanging out with friends yeah no that's yeah. really
1: good that's very good um and if people want to find you online and if you want people to find you online where's a good place to find you
0: that's a great question i think Pers- for a personal sort of engagement, I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram, uh, but I also have a LinkedIn profile. Okay, uh, I can be emailed directly. I'll
1: put your email. Uh, okay, there. so we, you, won't we won't do that. <laughs> but the so they can get you on LinkedIn if they want professional networking type of stuff.
0: Yeah, I need to update it. It's okay. a little archaic. The okay. information there. So yeah.
1: Facebook, Instagram, sugar update LinkedIn. It's a good place to find her. Um, well this has been a fun interview
0: Great I hope the listeners Will consider that as well
1: Oh I'm sure yeah, they will yeah. I'm going to tell you there's people out there that have been waiting for a while for this interview
0: Yeah good I'm glad
1: we got the chance to do it Me too Well I love you honey Aww. And thank you for being on my show today My guest today has been Dr. Chantel Bondman Sankungu Chantel thank you for being on the show
0: uh, You're welcome and I love you too